Well, good morning, church, again. It's good to have all of you in the room because it's warmed up considerably now that we're all sitting here. So, so thank you for being here. So I'm not shivering up here as I preach. So, um, All right, we're going to dive right into the passage today. So if you'd be so kind, if you're able and willing, would you stand with me as we read our scripture today? Reading from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, help us today to have soft hearts. Help us to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Give me clarity of speech, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and redeemer. Amen. All right. Well, if I were to say the words, the bare minimum, I think we all know and have under, understand the idea of the bare minimum, and all of us, at one point in our lives, have done the bare minimum. Maybe we've been given a task or an assignment, and uh, we just kind of did just, the, just what was absolutely necessary in order to pass or get approval. You have the bare minimum, and then uh, you also have not understanding the assignment. You know, generally we think of those things as two separate things. With this idea of going, going with the bare minimum, if uh, all of you who have children and have asked them to clean their rooms before, you, you've seen them do the bare minimum. Well, a couple years ago, uh, we asked our kids to, to clean their room, our two oldest share a room, and um, 
we kind of expected the bare minimum, but what we got was not understanding the assignment. You know, usually when kids clean their rooms, they'll shove stuff in the closet, under the bed, and it's like, okay, your room's not really clean. You just moved it all. Well, we, we tell them to clean their room, and we, you know, we go downstairs and then, you know, come back a little bit later. And lo and behold, they have moved all of the stuff in their room, but instead of putting it under, be- under the bed in the closet, they've moved it into the hallway. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you guys didn't understand the assignment here on this one. Well, why, why am I talking about this? Well, the, the truth is, this idea of repentance, not only do we have a heart that sometimes often looks to do the bare minimum when it comes to repentance, when we do the bare minimum in repentance, we show that we don't really understand the assignment. We don't understand the assignment. So today, with our passage as we dive in, we're going to be looking at this idea of repentance. Why is it necessary? And what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? We're in this Advent season, in this kind of Advent series, something new, the Advent of the Kingdom of Heaven. So why are we talking about John the Baptist and repentance today? Well, the first four chapters of Matthew are all an introduction to his book and all have to do with the coming of the Kingdom of Heaven, which is what Christmas is all about. So that's why we're going there today. And just spoiler alert, for Christmas Eve and Christmas, we'll be walking through chapter four. And I promise you, it will be all about Christmas. So we'll we'll be connecting those things, I think, in a way, way that is fair to the text. But let's dive in. We are going to uh, be starting off with John the Baptist, looking at his message. He starts in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has this command, Repent, repent. Now, who is this John and what's he doing? Well, John the Baptist, we know, is the cousin of Jesus, but also more so, he is um, a, a man in a long line of prophets. Even his garments, his, his, this garment of cam, camel hair and um, this, this uh, leather belt that he is wearing that we have down here in, in these verses, and his diet and all, all of this is, is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, of Elijah himself. One of you even asked me that this morning. You know, what's, what's the deal with what's going on here? And it's showing that, that Elijah is yet another prophet in a line of prophets that is calling the people of God to repent and follow him to see who their God is. So he's declaring this message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we're going to unpack this idea of repentance here. So um, here's our first point. Repentance is a radical whole person transformation coming from the heart. Radical whole person transformation coming from the heart. So John's message here is not just this idea of, hey, do something small or just change your behavior a bit, but it's a radical, whole person transformation that comes from the heart. It's not just, I do things on the outside, but there's something going on deep down in my heart. And the passage today is going to show us that repentance is described in kind of three ways. There's three things happening with this idea of repentance. The first one is baptism. The people were going to John and being baptized. Okay, what's going on with this? We as Christians, we still get baptized. And it starts here with John. And baptism, especially with John's baptism, which isn't exactly the same thing as what we are doing today. We're doing, our baptism has a lot to do with the death and resurrection of Christ. But starting with John, we have this kind of cleansing idea. But basically, one commentator said this, it's a symbolic cleansing marking the entry into a new relationship with God. 
So a symbolic cleansing that, that marks the entry into a new relationship with God. It's saying the past is back there, but I'm going to have a new relationship with God where I am fully submitted to Him. It's not just, oh, I want to believe in God, but my whole life, its whole orientation is now submitted to Him. So they're getting baptized. The second thing is they're, being, they're confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins as they're being baptized. Confession simply is agreeing with God. To confess something is to agree. That's actually what the root of the word means. And you're agreeing with God about your sin. You're saying, God, yes, my sin is here, but also, Lord, I need to change. You desire me to change. You don't want me to be the same anymore. This doesn't honor you. I need to be different. Now, confession and baptism go hand in hand. A baptism that doesn't have confession is a meaningless baptism. Saying I'm entering into a new relationship with God, but I haven't actually admitted to my brokenness and my sinfulness and how my life is not in order, well, that doesn't mean anything because you're not actually entering into a new relationship with God. You're just getting water on you. You're getting wet. But also a confession without baptism isn't a true confession because true confession means that I need to go in a different direction. I need to have a new relationship, a new life with God. So they go together, both hand in hand, confession and baptism. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's, it's good to use it again with this idea of marriage. That it's, you're entering into something new that totally redefines your life. You know, if you enter into marriage and you think you're going to be able to continue to go on as a single person, living your life like the way you were, you're in for a rude awakening. So Ben and Caitlin, as you guys prepare for, for marriage, be ready. It's going to be different. Your identity is different. There's now somebody that you are one flesh with. I read somewhere that usually it takes 10 years into marriage for you to kind of get to the we portion where you automatically are just thinking we, we, we. Everything is plural. 10 years because we're so ingrained in thinking I, I, I. But here we have this confession in baptism. It's this idea of I was in this one area of life, this one stage of life, but now I'm entering into a new life, a new life with Christ, just as when you enter into marriage with somebody. I'm renouncing my former way of life. I'm going to a new way of life. Okay, so we have baptism, we have confession, but then there's a third one. It's the biggest one. I want to spend way more time on that. It's the idea of bearing fruit. So let's go back to our passage and see this idea of bearing fruit. Because that's really how John describes and how Matthew describes through John this idea of repentance. You see, we have a temptation to have skin-deep repentance. But John is saying, no, you need to have fruit in your life. Fruit in your life. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees really kind of serve as a foil or an opposite to what's going on with the people who are getting baptized and confessing their sins. This part of the, the passage is really kind of the high point of the tension, and it's where all of, all of our kind of emotional energy is spent as John kind of rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Matthew is drawing our eyes to something very particular about repentance through what John is saying. So let's talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're kind of the two main religious groups that existed at this, at this point in Israel's history. The Sadducees oversaw the temple and kind of the priestly uh, order of things. They were pretty chummy with the Romans. And uh, 
some more religious Jews, like the Pharisees, kind of looked down on the Sadducees. They didn't like them very much. They weren't as holy as they ought to be, or at least in the sense that the Pharisees wanted them to be. They, but they, were, they had political power and influence, both with Rome and they controlled the temple. The Pharisees were very, uh, they were sticklers for the rules. They, ha- rules. they had a lot of uh, extra, you know, we'll use the word baggage or things that went along with walking with God. But they were also very well respected by the common people. If a Pharisee came along, the common people in Judah at this time would look at the Pharisees and be like, that's a person I want to be like. They've got their act together. They follow the law. They are meticulous about keeping the law. They, they tithe even their spices. They're mint and they're cumin. They, they tithe that. They're like, oh yeah, the Pharisees, they've got it going on. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, though, they, they, don't, they don't get along with one another. They're not happy bedfellows. But here they are coming out together to inspect and look at John's ministry. Kind of saying, okay, we're the authorities here. We're going to see, is what John doing, is it in line with where we ought to be going? John has a pretty strong response to them. I mean, look at what he says. You brood of vipers. He's calling them snakes. Woo, I mean, that's, I mean, how would you guys feel if I got up here on Sunday morning? You're all a bunch of snakes. Yeah, I don't know how long I'd be here. So, uh, but that's what John says to them. He calls them out. But what does he do? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he tells them. He's basically saying, you guys aren't repenting. You're not bearing fruit. You're having a skin-deep repentance. Yes, everything in your life looks shiny and good, but the internal parts of your life aren't leading to the fruit we see on the outside. You're not consistent. Your behavior doesn't match your heart. You look spiritual, but you're dead as a doornail. They have skin-deep repentance, external behavior not backed up by the heart. Paul Tripp, he's a, a, an author and pastor and, uh, and does a lot of counseling. And, one of the, and, and those of you who've done some counseling with me have, have heard this probably at this point. Uh, Paul Tripp talks about how our life is like an apple tree. And oftentimes, instead of bearing good fruit, good apples, what we do is we try to look for good fruit around us and then we staple it to our tree. We don't have a good root. We're just, you know, tacking apples, you know, onto our tree. And then we say, ah, look at our lives. It's all in order. Look at this good fruit I'm bearing. And we list off our spiritual accomplishments. And Paul is like, <laughs> Paul Tripp's talking about, you know, that, that's not how we go. That's not how we live as Christians. But that's often what we do. Let me just slap all these spiritual things on it, and I'll be okay. But what does John say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's the idea that the fruit comes up and out of your heart and, on, and is on display for everyone around you. Now, the fruit that the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing, they kind of have two main uh, tendencies or temptations or ways that they're failing. The first one is they're identifying or they're putting their trust in their identification with the people of God. You know, we're children of Abraham. God obviously smiles on us because we can trace our lineage all the way back to him. God likes his children, doesn't he? So they're putting their identification or their trust in their identification with the people of God. I find myself in an apple orchard. I must be an apple tree. Basically, that's what they're saying. The second thing is, especially with the Pharisees, they're putting their trust in their external religiosity. 
And we see that throughout Matthew. Not necessarily so in this passage, but definitely throughout the book. They put their trust in their external religiosity. And that's stapling fruit onto the tree. Now that temptation is the same for us, is it not? I think especially we want to put our faith in our external religiosity. Mainly we'll make minor external corrections in our life. You know, if somebody confronts us or we see something is wrong, we think about, okay, what are the things I need to do in my life? I need to kind of correct this little thing over here. I need to not yell at my kids. Maybe I need to give more to my church. You know, we, we talk about these things, but we don't actually then address what's going on deeper in our heart. Our repentance is just skin deep. I change my external behavior without asking, why am I yelling at my kids in this way? Why am I unwilling to let go of my material resources? Why do I continue to go back to the well of sexual immorality and pornography? Why do I struggle with this eating disorder? You know, you put on the list of sins. So we need to look at our heart and deal with that stuff there. Ultimately, we often have hard hearts, do we not? We don't want to look at our hearts because that's uncomfortable. It requires kind of digging deep and experiencing pain. But we also have the temptation not only to trust in our religious external affairs, but we also trust in our religious heritage. Well, I grew up in the church. I had a religious experience as a child. I faithfully come here on Sundays. Surely I'm one of these. Instead of taking the hard look at our hearts and being willing to say, where am I at really? Where do I need to change really? You guys know I worked with students for a long time, and this is a harder thing to share with you, but, and it's kind of sad. But I found the hardest type of student to work with, the ones who were most resistant to change and the ones who struggled the most in understanding the grace of God were often the ones who came out of Christian families. That was a painful reality to walk through. Now, I want to be very clear. There were many children that came out of Christian families that were wonderful, and they loved the Lord, they received grace, they walked with Him, but I also know that the biggest stumbling blocks and barriers in ministry, within the ministry, people who were always pushing back and not wanting to reach out, not wanting to be changed, not wanting to embrace grace, they weren't the people who didn't grow up in Christian homes. They were the ones from Christian homes. And it makes me wonder that as we are, not, I'm not talking about our church, but as our church as a whole, how are we doing with helping our children understand the gospel? Do we just teach them, here's all the moral things you need to do, or do we teach them how to actually let the gospel impact their life and to see the beauty of Christ, to see that they are broken and to be changed? I know as a parent, oftentimes it is far easier just to say, ah, just change your behavior here instead of actually helping my child understand the gospel in this particular situation. Oftentimes, because I don't want to understand the gospel in my own life. I just want to well, we're just going to change this little thing over here and maybe all will be okay. But John is crying out, repent, bear fruit. 
He's saying don't have that kind of surface level, skin deep, just being content with little changes here and there. He says, no, be a changed man or woman from your heart and let that push into your life and be different. Be different. So repentance is not just mere intellectual agreement where I believe in God or I say, yeah, I need to change. But it's also not just feeling sorry for yourself, having an emotional response. Obviously, there needs to be intellectual agreement and an emotional response, but it's not merely those things. And it's also not just a one-time deal where I look at my life once and I say, okay, I'm done with that. I'm going to go this, over this thing over here. Yes, there is a one-time thing that happens when we put our faith in Christ, when we believe in Him for the first time and say, yes, Jesus, you died for my sins. We step from darkness and into light, death, to life that is something that happens but when we do that the rest of our life is an ongoing life of repentance where we bear fruit so john here would not yell at us and say bear fruit in keeping with repentance he would say well done in the fruit that you were bearing when martin luther started the Protestant Reformation. You know, he wasn't meaning to start the Protestant Reformation, but he nailed his 95 theses to the door. Number one, the first theses, he said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, which Jesus is going to say that in chapter four, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We are so quick to say, all right, I'm in the door, I'm with Christ, and then we forget that my entire life is an ongoing correction by the Lord. We, of all people, should be open to correction, open to the Lord speaking into our lives because we've already laid down our life. You know, we talked about last week with surrendering and being a part of His kingdom. But when that happens, our whole life then is reoriented towards Him. Now, what's the solution then to skin-deep repentance? How does this actually come? Well, there is tremendous hope. Because in this passage, John talks about one who's coming after him, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Basically a permanent change. John's like, hey, all I can do is like dip you under some water, you know, and then you come out. And he's like, but there's going to be one who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, who is going to give you an entirely new heart, who's going to give you the heart of God himself. That's what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit comes and resides within us. We become new creations. And it's that new creation that then leads to a life of repentance. Yes, we still have the temptation to staple fruit on the tree, but with Christ as our root, as we are willing to let people point out that we have stapled apples on our tree, then we get to replace those stapled apples with real apples, real growth, real fruit as we walk with the Lord. And this, it comes out of that new heart. We're not manufacturing repentance. We're instead laying down our lives and letting the Lord work that repentance in us. So basically, it just as an application for all of us as a church, just be quick to receive correction. And then when you hear the correction, ask the deeper question of why was that needed in the first place? And if you're resistant to the, 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 the rebuke, why am I resistant? What's going on in my heart with this? Those are just questions that you can ask. So, repentance is radical whole person transformation coming from the heart. Now, this leads us to a big question 
of why is this important? Why do we need to do this? Well, what does John say? Repent because for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some translations will say, or it's come near. What does this mean? That the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the kingdom of heaven is basically God's promised reign, or God, this idea that God is now taking control. That's here. It's happening. It's begun. And God's reign is not a political entity. Instead, it's God making things right in the world. It goes far beyond any sort of political entity. It's God's rule being on the earth. The rightness happening. Rightness happening. But also, John's raising the point that it's no longer just coming, because for centuries the Jewish people were looking for God's kingdom to come, but it's here. It's at hand. And of course, with Christ being baptized right after this, there's a confirmation, yes, indeed, Christ's kingdom is here. So it's no longer coming, but it's here. And this is where Christmas is so important for us to put together with this idea of repentance. Because Christmas is a season that we are reminded that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. We can no longer live as if the supernatural has not invaded our reality. We can't go on living as if the answer to wrongness has not been given. We can't go on living as if God did not come into our world, put on flesh, and die for us. Christmas is a reminder of all of those things. That John's declaration of repent for the kingdom of hand is at hand is true. As we are reminded that the Christ came and was laid in a manger, we are reminded, yes, indeed, God is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What a beautiful truth. This quotation from Isaiah 40, it's, it's, this is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This quotation happens at the beginning of basically the back half of Isaiah. Most of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, are full of judgment and terrible things. There's some good promises in there, but it's, it's hard. But starting in chapter 40, the tone shifts. And Isaiah starts looking forward to that glorious promised future. You know, I've, I've used the word glorious eschatological, fancy word for end times, this glorious end times restoration. So with John being this one, this voice crying in the wilderness, Matthew and John are both telling us, it's here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and this is a good thing. It's a good thing. So that leads us to our second point, when we're asking the question, why do we repent? The arrival of the kingdom brings us face to face with judgment. With judgment. The arrival of the kingdom brings us face to face with judgment. Because that is the big idea that John brings to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He talks about judgment. The reality that there is a king and he has come to bring justice. John basically gives three warnings. We see in verse 7 that there is a wrath to come. See that at the verse, end of verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We then see in verse 10 that the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Our idea that, hey, you're going to get chopped down. And that those trees that don't have good fruit get thrown into the fire. And then kind of going on in 
at the end of his little, little spiel at verse 12, he talks about how the one who's coming after him is going to throw the chaff into the fire as well. With wheat, you had uh, the, the, the edible portion that was good for food and you would make into things. You'd have the wheat and you'd have the chaff. The chaff was the outer husk that would blow away in the wind. It's good for nothing except being thrown into the fire. So John is saying, look, repent. Why? Because there's a judgment. The kingdom of heaven is here. And it's a reality that there is a judgment. Now, before we're all doom and gloom, I want to remind us that judgment is a good thing. That we live in a broken world and we long for the wrongs to be made right. But one of the quintessential wrongs of mankind, we should say the wrong of mankind, is not turning to the Lord, not worshiping Him as we ought. We pretend like things are okay instead of throwing ourselves at His feet. And we want all the wrongs in the world to be made right, but we don't really want the wrongs in our lives to be made right. Judgment for the world out there, Lord, mercy for me. But judgment is good, and I've done wicked things. So I need to hear the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is real. And John is saying there's no time to delay. So during this Christmas season, we're reminded there's no time to delay. There's no time to delay. Jesus is here. So we need to examine our hearts. We stand at a crossroads if Jesus has indeed come. Which path will we choose? Now, is this passage saying that your fruit is what saves you? Because it seems like John's like, hey, bear fruit, do good things in order for this judgment to not come on you. I mean, a surface level kind of quick reading gives that impression, does it not? But how do we square that with the idea that we are saved by grace through faith? That salvation is a gift from God and that we can't earn it, we can't do enough good things to get it, but God just gives it to us out of his love. Well, I think ultimately we have to look at it as a whole. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they seemed to have it all together. They had the good life. They were good religious people. They had the intellectual systems, and they had the moral behavior. You would not be able to catch a Pharisee doing anything immoral. They had the right heritage. They were children of Abraham. But instead, the problem that John is identifying with them is their heart. So no, we are not saved by our ideas or by our religious behavior, but it's about our heart. Have we wholly turned to the Lord? Have we given Him the entirety of our hearts? That's the question that Matthew is posing to us. Do we fully belong to Him? Do you have more than a skin-deep righteousness? What kind of apples are on your tree? So we turn, or we, excuse me, we escape from judgment by turning to God and away from ourselves. It's not by doing a bunch of good things, but it's by throwing ourselves at his feet for mercy, confessing our sins, and then having a new life with him as we walk the other way. That new life doesn't earn us protection from judgment but it is the result of that baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's what the baptism in the Holy Spirit produces. We're saved by faith alone, but as the Reformers would say, that saving faith is never alone. 
We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. I think one of the beauties of this passage is that we can go from chaff to wheat. We don't have to be chaff. The Lord can make us into wheat. It's beautiful, beautiful hope. So, repeating our second point, the arrival of the kingdom brings us face to face with judgment. But I don't want us to end there. I want us to look at a little bit of hope. Because we get the first action of Jesus in this, this chapter. Like, Jesus hadn't really done anything. Before this, he's like a baby in the narrative. And this is the first thing he does, is come and get baptized by John. So what in the world is going on here? Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't need to confess sin, so why is he getting baptized? What's going on with this? If John's preaching repentance, why is Jesus showing up? John even emphatically says that John needs to be the one who's baptized by Christ, not the other way around. The Greek's really clear. It's like an emphatic, like, I need to be baptized by you. It's crazy. Now, so there's a couple of um, questions about this or, or curiosities. Jesus says, well, the reason why I need to be baptized is because it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? A common explanation is that Jesus is fulfilling all points of the law so that he would be our perfect sacrifice. The only problem with that is that baptism wasn't part of the law. There was no law that said you had to be baptized. So it couldn't be that, that he's fulfilling the Mosaic law for us. Instead, I think there's kind of a, a, a better picture, a more holistic idea of what's going on here. Uh, Jonathan Pennington describes righteousness as this, whole person behavior that accords with God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. So righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. And basically, I think the, the best explanation of why Jesus then needs to be baptized is that John was preaching this idea that people needed to have a whole radical life or whole person transformation coming from the heart. Like that's his message. And although Jesus didn't need to turn onto a new path, Jesus was affirming that message. He was saying and submitting to John's message and saying, yes, my life needs to be wholly devoted to God. And if I am going to be the perfect sacrifice, then I need to have a life that is fully devoted to God. Not that it wasn't before, but that, yes, I am saying, indeed, this is true. And all of you need to have a whole life devoted to God. It's remarkable. This is the first thing Jesus does, is to go and be baptized, saying, yes, my whole life is God's. So for Jesus to redeem us, he needed to be fully obedient, and not obedient because baptism was one more check in the box, but because his whole life needed to have that orientation just like ours. And when Jesus is baptized, here's the beauty of it. He is affirmed that he is God's son. God the Father speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, I want us to hone in on this. Jesus is not just modeling whole person behavior, not just modeling it saying, hey, this is what it needs to be like, but he's doing it for us. For us. We can say that God is now well-pleased in us because of Christ. We're given this new heart, the heart of Christ, and when God looks at us, he doesn't see our junk, he sees Christ in whom he is well-pleased. So the fact that there's this judgment coming 
if we have repented, if we have turned to Christ, if we've had that baptism with the Holy Spirit, we don't have to worry about God's judgment coming down on us. Instead, with that judgment comes, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What a beautiful truth. Beautiful truth. So when you feel like you are too dirty, too broken, remember that if your life is in Christ, you have the Father's approval on you. You are His. The Father sees Christ, not your sin. That sin has been dealt with on the cross 100%. Not that God somehow tricked, but that he, has, he has chosen in His mercy to throw those sins behind His back into the deepest parts of the seas. And He sees His Son Christ. Our ongoing whole life repentance is not what earns God's favor, but it's the result of God's favor in us. So here's our response for today. Lord, may I see the kingdom is at hand and wholly repent. So this idea of recognizing that the kingdom is here and may my whole life repent. And may you continue repenting. You never graduate from repentance. You'll never graduate. May we repent out of joy knowing that we're beloved by the Father, because of Christ. May we have that whole person transformation that John cries out for us to have and know that the Father smiles on us because he sees Christ, his beloved Son, in whom he's well pleased. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Christ to be sin, to take on our sin so that we might be righteousness and take on Christ's righteousness. Father, help us to have repentant hearts not out of a fear of terrible things to come, but out of an acknowledgement that you are God and that you are good. Father, may we live in light of reality this, of judgment this Christmas season, but also know that repentance, repentance can be real. May our repentance be full. Help us, Father, to be pleasing to you. Pray all this in Christ's name.